All right, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. So we have all these empty rows right in the front, and all of the naughty kids in class always sit in the back rows. But it's okay, I think I look better from back there anyway, so I'm glad to. So kids, uh, elementary kids, the good news is you guys are dismissed, and Teacher Heather is over there, and you can head out. So for the youth group, I have good news and I have bad news. So the youth, the bad news is that Pastor Chris is sick today, so he won't be taking you out. The good news is that we do actually go through the Bible here in the sanctuary. I don't teach it quite as well as Pastor Chris does, but we're going to do the best we can. So you guys get to join us for 1 Peter chapter 4, and I think it's a great text, uh, not just for the youth, obviously it's a great text for all of us. Uh, I hope that you guys are enjoying our journey through this uh, first letter of Peter. I think that it's so rich in application for us uh, and exactly what it is that we're dealing with uh, as a church within the culture and the direction that, uh, that our culture's heading. So uh, let's just jump right in uh, this morning and uh, let's pray and just ask the Lord to really bless uh, our time in the word today. So Father, we do thank you for today, and we thank you for this uh, time that you have set aside, Lord, in this place that you have provided, uh, Lord, and the, really the privilege that we have of being together as a church family and meeting together and of being taught by your spirit, Lord, as we look at your word. And we do pray, Lord, for that each and every time we gather, Lord, we pray that the teaching ministry of your spirit would be manifest here this morning. Lord, we pray that you'd speak to each one of us those things that you have, uh, that your spirit would say to our hearts personally, Lord, and that, that he would say as well collectively to us as your church. And so we pray your blessing on this time, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So 1 Peter chapter 4, and I should have said before, if you need a Bible, we have Bibles for you. So just raise your hand and one of the uh, folks will get you one, or you can use the Bible on your phone. Any Bible is a good Bible, uh, but do follow along just to make sure that I'm not making stuff up as we go. So uh, 1 Peter chapter 4 this morning, and if you've been with us for the last three weeks, we've been watching Peter as he really is encouraging this group of troubled believers there in the first century. And they were in the face of this coming wave of just intense persecution, official persecution by the Roman government against Christians. And so we've seen that Peter, the apostle of hope, he writes this letter specifically to give hope to all of us as Christians, really, but to give hope that we need in the face of trials and in the face of struggles as we try to just navigate living out our faith in the midst of a culture which I think we would all agree is increasingly hostile to our Christian faith. So Peter writes, he wrote to them, he speaks to us just to help us try to really maintain a godly perspective, to, to keep that eternal perspective that we so desperately need in the middle of those kinds of difficult times. So we've seen him, first of all, exhort us to live, you know, live in hope, you know, live in holiness, to live in harmony. He's talked a lot about us maintaining a good testimony, even in the midst of our suffering. Knowing specifically last week, he talked about the fact that we have this clear conscience. We have this wonderful clear conscience as a result of Jesus suffering on the cross on our behalf. And so now having kind of told us about having this clear conscience in chapter 3, this morning in chapter 4, Peter's going to tell us how to think clearly during days of difficulty, or really to live in days of difficulty. Chapters 4 and 5, we're going to see, deal with God's grace in the midst of the kind of trial and difficulty and even suffering that we go through. This morning, I think Peter's going to give us four different ways that we can live, each of which will really help us to navigate the especially difficult days that we go through. And we remember it just at the end of our text last time, Peter pointed 
to the sufferings of Jesus. In chapter 3, verse 18, he said that Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And remember, Peter ended by just really showing that God could work astonishing good even from the worst thing that has ever happened in human history, right? That through the crucifixion of Jesus, glory came as a result of the way that Jesus patiently endured trial. He says now in verse 1, he says, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Peter says, hey, tough times are coming. He says, you need to look at this difficulty. You need to look at suffering the way that Jesus looked at difficulty and the way that Jesus looked at suffering. He says, arm your mind, right? Arm yourselves with the mind of Jesus. Think like he thinks about what it is that you are about to face. And that word that's translated there, arm yourselves, it's a great word. It was a word specifically that referred to the way that a soldier would suit up for battle. And of course, Peter's picture here is that with that very same kind of determination and the same kind of care with which a soldier would put on his armor, right? That very thing that was meant to protect his very life that we as Christians need to be prepared for battle, first and foremost, in the way that we think and in what we expect. And we said before, we can't expect the world to treat us any better than it treated Jesus. We can't expect the world to treat Jesus in us better than it treated Jesus when he was here during his incarnation. Right, during those 33 and a half years of his life here on earth, during his earthly ministry. And so Peter's point is that as Christians, we need to adopt the attitude of Jesus toward persecution and suffering. First of all, that it is coming, but most importantly, that we will not let it move us from the will of God for our lives. And we need to arm ourselves with that same kind of discipline, that unswerving resolve to do God's will. Remember the same way that Daniel did and his buddies. Remember they were carried away captive to Babylon. And yet it says there at the very beginning of the book that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. He wouldn't defile himself with the things of Babylon and we see throughout the rest of the book that the Lord honored him and honored his friends because of that resolve. And the amazing thing is that as we do this, right, when we start to look and to endure difficulty the way that Jesus does, what we start to realize is that it has a very purifying effect on our lives. In just the same way as he says here that Jesus suffered in the flesh and died physically, so have we, right? We have died to the person that we once were, and we've also died to the power that the flesh once had over us. So this verse is sort of Peter's version of Paul's explanation in Romans chapter 6, where he says that because of Christ's death, Paul says that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. So Peter encouraged us to have the mind of Christ and to realize that we can persevere through difficulty. We can maintain these lives of holiness. Jesus suffered for us that he might save us from sin. And now as we suffer for him or suffer with him, what it does is we sort of learn to hate sin even more. And as a result, right, so as we do this, look again at the end of verse 1. It says that he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in 
licentiousness and lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. So we can now live lives of victory because we are no longer slaves to sin. Now think about that, because both Peter and Paul, what they help us to understand is that before you were born again, you had no choice but to live in sin. Paul says right there, we were slaves to it. We were all serving this cruel master who paid ultimately the the wages of death. And so before we knew the Lord, we tended to just kind of live for the moment, right? We took life for granted. We did whatever it was that we wanted to do, regardless of the cost to us or regardless of the cost to those around us. And yet I love what Peter says here. He says, enough of that. In fact, that's a good word to circle, right? Or at least note in your mind in verse 3, the word enough, right? Speaking of the time that we each spent really working hard, right, to develop our resumes of sin, right, back in the day, right? As we walked in licentiousness and lusts and drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries, all of those things that simply fed our flesh and that insatiable desire for pleasure at any cost. So Peter comes and he says, look, we have already invested enough of our lives in the world. And I think it's important to look, especially in the midst of trial and during a time of difficulty, to really be reminded that going back to all of those things just isn't an option. Peter says, enough. I lived for that enough. I've invested enough of my life in those things to know that there is nothing in it. There's no future in it. And so he's calling on them and he's really exhorting us to recognize that fact. Don't invest another day, not another moment back into those things, that life we once lived, but instead think like Jesus, right? Have his mind, have his perspective on what it is you're facing, that you don't need to succumb to it, that you can be victorious over it and that God will somehow bring glory on the other side of it, right? Jesus gives us truly a better way. Rather than live like the world around us, we can live for God's will for us, and we start to feel the grip that sin has on our lives. We start to feel that kind of loosen up its hold on us. And yet, Peter says next, we need to be prepared. Because as we arm ourselves with the mind of Christ, it's not just going to change the way that we look at sin, but it's going to change the way that sinners look at us. Because look what he says in verse 4. He says, in regard to these, they may think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. So here's the reality that some of you know all too well. When we stand strong in the face of persecution, it often only brings more persecution, doesn't it? When we say no to sin, some of our sinning friends will simply say no to us because they just can't understand what it is that we are about now. And all they can do, Peter says here, is speak evil of us. Or I love the way that another translation puts it, that they will laugh at you in contempt and scorn. You know, when we're rejected because of righteousness sake, right, we're usually rejected because not only are we no longer going to engage in it, but we're actually taking some sort of a stand against it. And yet having that mind of Christ reminds us that even for all of the persecution that that is going to add into our lives, that in and of itself is its own blessing, right? It's the blessing of knowing that we're right in God's eyes and that we're doing right in God's eyes. You know, the reason that we're being persecuted is because God has changed our lives so dramatically, right? Once we would just sin eagerly, but now we choose knowingly 
Even if it means being ostracized or singled out for doing against sin, right? We choose it because that's the mark of a changed life. It's that clean break that we've made from sin, right? Peter reminds us that we can rejoice in that even though those who don't know Jesus don't understand it. So maybe there's some of you here who have family or you have friends or you have coworkers that just don't understand your faith, right? They can't figure out why you do the things you do or why you don't do the things that you used to do, right? And you try and you try to make them understand and yet they just don't seem to get it. Well, here's the thing. They don't seem to get it simply because they can't get it. They are spiritually incapable of getting it. Paul said it this way to the Corinthians. He said that the natural man, right, the unsaved man, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So those who aren't born again in Christ are still dead in their sins. They are spiritually dead people, right? I see dead people, right? They're all around us because they're still dead in their sins. And so we shouldn't be at all surprised when they don't understand this new life that's welling up inside of us. But I think what we need to understand is that that new life condemns their current life. See, whether they understand it or not, the new life like ours, what it communicates to everybody around us who's still living in that old life is that you don't need to live that way anymore. What our new lives communicate to them is that there is a God who rescues people out of that life, right? Who makes them into something altogether different. And what that does is it makes every single person who decides to stay in that life, it makes them responsible, right? There's a personal decision that they are making to stay there in that life that they know in their heart of hearts they know it's wrong. And personal responsibility is considered heresy by our culture, isn't it? And yet that's exactly what it is that gets exposed. So two reactions, right? Either people are going to come to you and they're going to look and say, wow, tell me about this God who does that kind of a thing. Or they're going to separate themselves away from you even further because their behavior brings condemnation on them when they're around you. And yet rather than be frustrated by them, understanding this, we need to be compassionate with them. Because look what Peter says next in verse 5. He says that they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Right? Those who choose to continue in that life of sin, one day, Peter says, they will stand before the Lord. And Peter's not saying this at all out of condemnation. He's really saying it out of compassion. Because Peter realizes that they are in grave danger. And look what he notes next. In verse 6, he says, for this reason, right, because everyone has to stand and give an account to God. He says, for this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Now, this verse is kind of a complex verse. It's led to lots of discussion over the last 2,000 years. The, the sense isn't that people get another chance to receive the gospel after they're dead. The sense is that Peter is encouraging believers with the fact that rather than facing future judgment for their sins, like the unbelievers he just talked about in verse 5, that those who have heard and who have believed the gospel of Jesus, that we face an altogether different kind of a future. right? That though they're persecuted on earth because of their faith, right? though we're judged according to men in the flesh, that even now these people are alive according to God in the spirit. So he's saying basically, look, there were people who are now dead physically, 
who are alive with God in the Spirit, right? These same people, just like you, they were judged by the world, but they heard the gospel before they died. They may have ultimately suffered and died because of their faith, but they're alive even now with God. So he's talking about who? He's talking about the martyrs. Martyrs who up to that point had suffered to the point of death, but were now alive and living in heaven. So once again, it's just that strong exhortation that even if our life is taken from us here on earth, that that's not the final word, right? God has the final word, doesn't he? As it relates to everything, as it relates to our life. I know we quoted this verse last week, but I think it bears repeating. Jesus in Matthew 5 said, Blessed are you when men revile, persecute, and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice, he says, and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Right? If you're suffering or being put down or being mocked or being ridiculed because of your faith in Jesus, Jesus says you can rejoice because you're in good company. Not only in the company of Jesus, but in the company of the prophets, right? Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Hosea. And remember, Paul said to Timothy that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You know, today in other parts of the world, of course, this kind of persecution can ultimately result in death, right? In our culture, Oftentimes it results in, what, ostracism or rejection, and we're starting to see more and more it can have social and even financial consequences. And we're going to see this increase more and more. But one way or another, all who live godly lives will suffer rejection sooner or later. And whenever it happens, however it happens, we can rejoice, right? Because according to Peter, we're in the good company of the martyrs. According to Paul, we're in the good company of the godly. And according to Jesus, we're in the good company of the prophets. And all of that is good company to be in. Amen? As we all are armed with this mind of Christ, right? Protecting our minds, protecting our wills so we can continue on in faithfulness, even in the face of difficulty. So now I think as Peter goes on, He's going to help us understand the importance of living with the mind of Christ because our time here is short and we need to make the most of the time that we have left. He talked about living like the time is short. Look at verse 7. He says, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Right? Time is short and that is a great motivation to live for and to continue to serve Jesus. Now, when Peter says that the end of all things is at hand, he's talking about the history of man's rebellion against God, that one day it is all going to be through, right? As we've just seen studying through the book of Revelation, Jesus is going to return. He's going to rapture his church. There's going to be this time of tribulation followed by his second coming, then the millennium, then this brand new heaven and new earth. And so Peter reminds us as we endure difficulty that all of these things are at hand or literally that they are drawing near. And the Bible is very, very clear about what are going to be the characteristics of the days as the days draw near to the end. In what's called the Olivet Discourse, right, as Jesus talked to the disciples there on the Mount of Olives, Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, he talks about these signs around the world that he likens to be like birth pangs, right? And the thing about birth pangs, many of you women know, the closer you get to the birth, and of course in this case we're talking about the birth of the kingdom of God, but those birth pains get more frequent and they start to come with much more intensity. I still have scars on my hands to prove how intense some of those pains can be, right? Even now, we are much closer than when Peter said we were close. 
And these birth pangs are getting more frequent and they're getting more intense. We're seeing these times of contraction, right, in the world with this intense pain, followed by these times kind of of relief, right, with a, a relative calm and a bit of a, a respite, right? And so today, if you're like me, you, you know, you scroll through your news feed or you listen to a podcast or you read the newspaper or whatever you do, and you look and you say, is it my imagination or are things getting worse before my very eyes? Do things seem to be getting worse with greater intensity and greater frequency? Well, it is not your imagination. It is the fact that as we draw closer to the time when Jesus is going to return, that there will be a greater sense of intensity. There will be a greater frequency with which we see these things happening. But what we always need to remember is that it ends in the birth of something beautiful, doesn't it? It ends in the birth of the kingdom of God. So here where Peter's talking about all things are at hand, remember he's speaking to a group of Christians who are in deep persecution and in deep trial and they're living in a time of deep difficulty, even as some of you may be this morning, something that you're going through in your life. And one of the most important things for us to be reminded of at a time like that is that the Lord could come today. We could be out of here. It may happen before we're done here this morning. I know you're all praying for that, right? Get us out of here, right? But that's part of our living hope. To be able to look around and to see how crazy it's getting and yet to be reminded that the Lord could catch us away and take us out of here at any moment. But in the meantime, because our time is short, we need to live like our time is short. And therefore, Peter says, we need to be serious and watchful in our prayers. So as we see the situation and the birth pangs that are increasing all around us, Peter says that it should drive us to our knees. In the middle of difficult days, it's so important to give ourselves to prayer. And it's important that our prayers be dominated by eternity. Because when our prayers are dominated, dominated by eternity, they're going to be serious and they're going to be watchful. There's going to be a weight to our prayers. And as we look at the things that are going on and we see what's happening in the world, especially toward the body of Christ worldwide, all of these things, our prayers need to take on a sense of, of sobriety. And yet it's so easy for all of those kind of mundane cares of our daily lives, right, to take our eyes and our focus off of the eternal. And yet aren't you glad to know that God has a remedy for this problem? Because it's these times of facing difficulty, that's what gets us and it's what keeps us focused on eternity. Right? It's when we're going through tough times and when we're enduring kind of difficult days and seasons of suffering and, and the pressures of persecution, those are the times that we really start to long for heaven. If we're honest, it's the good times and the nice things and the easier days those things all have a tendency to shift our focus off of eternity. But it's when the tough times really come, right? When, when our bodies hurt or our hearts are broken or our wallets are empty, right? Those are the times when we say, hey, I don't even belong here. Right? This is not my home. And we start to long even more for heaven. And I think we also, Peter says next, we start to continue to have a greater need to be in fellowship with like-minded believers who are also on this very same pilgrim path. But we need to stay on the path together. And so Peter exhorts us, look at verse 8. He says, and above all things. Now that's really saying something, right? Above everything else, above even maintaining this kind of an eternal perspective, what does Peter say? He says, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. So above all of these things, 
right? We need to love one another because it's in the face of these kinds of difficulties that we can find ourselves in, right? When we're being ridiculed and rejected and ostracized and singled out, we can't expect love to come from anywhere else. And if we don't get it from the rest of the body of Christ, then where in the world are we going to get love from? It needs to come from one another. Now here, this is interesting, I think. Last week, we saw Peter encourage us to have brotherly love for one another, right? It's the Greek, the phileo love. It's the familial kind of love. But notice here, he turns up the volume, so to speak, and he calls on us to agape love one another, right? Agape love. It's a different type of love in the Bible. It's an others-centered. It's a self-sacrificing love. Agape love is, describes the kind of love that God has for us. It describes the fruit of the Spirit kind of love. So Peter says we're to have that love for one another, but look what he says. He says we're to have it fervently. Right? And that word, we talked about it a couple weeks back. It means to be stretched. It means to be strained. Right? And sometimes isn't it a stretch or a strain to love one another? It's that picture of an athlete like coming up to the finish line and trying to you know, stretch out and get through the tape before the runner behind them. And Peter says that when we love like this, what will it do? It will cover a multitude of sins. Now, interesting. Why would God give us this agape love that covers over a multitude of sins except that he knows that it's going to need to cover over a multitude of sins as we deal with one another in the family of God? Here's the truth. Not one of us in the body of Christ are perfect. None of us. And so what that means, by extension, is that you just need to accept that in the family of God, that every single person, sooner or later, is going to be less than perfect toward you. Right? That they're going to require a love from me that's only supplied to me by God, and that's able then to cover over whatever it is that they've done that has wronged me. And I have to say that this kind of love within the body of Christ is pretty sadly absent in the Western church. Even in baseball, right, you get three strikes before you're out. Is it the right three strikes? That's still three strikes. Three strikes, right, and you're out. But in the church, it seems like it's more like one strike and you're out. Because I know so many people in the church that won't have anything to do with a person who has failed them one single time. And we can look at it as a failure on their part, but in reality, it's a failure of love on our part, isn't it? It's a failure to extend that love that God has given us, which is meant to cover over whatever it is they've done to us. Because that's what's going to be needed in the body of Christ, especially as the days are going to get more difficult. We're going to need to depend on one another even more. Now, this is not an excuse to remain a sinful, obnoxious Christian jerk. But what it is, is it's simply meant to recognize that for all of those here in the room this morning that are trying their hardest to live like Christ, they will fall short. Right? We will all fall short, and we will all be in need of that kind of agape love from everyone around us, despite the fact that we've fallen short. And as an extension of that, look what Peter says next. He says in verse 9, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Now, of course, in the immediate context of what he was writing here with the persecution heightening across the Roman Empire, no doubt many of Peter's readers had already begun to scatter, 
right? They were dislocated from their cities. They were running like refugees. Some of them we know would leave everything and hide in catacombs. Others would open their homes to those who were fleeing persecution. But all of them were going to be called to love one another fervently, especially in those dark days of difficulty, because this is the way that the body of Christ cares for itself. Now, in our context, I believe that this carries the sense not just of opening up our homes, but of opening up our lives to our brothers and sisters in the church. Opening up our lives to those who are working through a difficult time, really to extend ourselves or to inconvenience ourselves. Isn't it inconvenient to have people stay in your home? Well, we need to be willing to inconvenience our lives in other ways in order to bring comfort to others. And we need to be able to do it with a happy heart. Because when someone is in this kind of a place of tremendous need and someone else in the body comes alongside them and puts their arm around them and extends themselves in that kind of hospitality and when they can do that without any kind of grumbling, how much that care is going to be appreciated by that person for the rest of their lives. And so this isn't just a case of meeting people's needs because the Bible commands us to do it. It goes way, way, way beyond that. This is the meeting of people's needs and then being able to do it in a spirit that looks like the Lord. And Peter's not just talking about physical needs because look what he points out in his very next thought. In verse 10, he says, as each one has received a gift minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now a steward was someone who served kind of as a house manager. Right? They didn't have any wealth of their own, but they cared for their master's wealth according to their master's will, according to their master's direction. And in the very same way, what the Bible teaches is that God has given us each different giftings and that the, the strength and the ability to bless others, right? To serve and to minister to others. Every single one of you in this room this morning who is a Christian, you have a gift that was given to you by the Holy Spirit. It's a supernatural gift. It's a, a way that God works through you. And each one of those gifts is probably different than the Christian who's sitting next to you. But all of them are given to build up the body. And so Peter says next in verse 11, he says, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So whatever it is, your specific gifting within the kingdom, right? whether it's to speak, right, in one of the, the speaking, like the teaching gifts or the gifts of prophecy or exhortation or words of wisdom or word of knowledge, he says if you have one of those gifts, exercise it speaking the oracles of God. Right? Use it to get God's word out there and into people's lives. Or whether your gifts are more along the, the lines of serving, right? More of a, a deacon kind of a physical gift. And that's what he's talking about here where he says if anyone ministers, the word ministers has the idea of a deacon, someone who's doing something physical, right? It's the kind of thing where if God gave you the gift of helps or the gift of mercy or the gift of administration or the gift of giving, whatever gift that you have, Peter says that now is the time to put it in play. Even though they were in the midst of this persecution, even there in the midst of difficulty, that's no excuse to take our gifts out of circulation from within the body of Christ. It's not a time, trial and difficulty are not a time for us to just kind of hunker down and take care of ourselves and put my gift up on a shelf somewhere. He calls on us to use those gifts that God has given us both in good times 
and especially during bad times. So Peter says, get that gift that God has given you back into circulation. It's kind of like he says, hey, it's all hands on deck. They are actively trying to wipe us out. They're trying to destroy the body of Christ. They're trying to remove us from the face of the earth. So everybody get your gifts out and get them back into circulation, right? Get them out into the middle of the human condition. And I think this is such an important exhortation for every one of us this morning as we sit here in the relative comfort and ease of the United States. Because if yours, I'm going to get rough this morning, okay? God bless you guys. I love you and you know that, don't you? If you're sitting here this morning and your gift, whatever it is, is in storage somewhere, if there's no outflow of your life that's building up and that's strengthening the body of Christ, that is not the normal Christian experience. It's nothing like the Lord. Who It says in Matthew, who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And notice what Peter's saying here. He says that one of the keys to getting ourselves through days that are difficult is not to focus on the difficulty and not to focus on our misery and not to, to focus on our plight or our predicament, but to focus on serving those people who are around us. I want you guys to write this down if you're taking notes because I'm about to give you a guaranteed method. Write this down. It's a guaranteed method to make yourself or to keep yourself completely miserable. And here's how you do it. Think only about yourself. And I promise you, you'll stay in that miserable condition. It's not, hey, you know, let me just focus on my stuff first. And once I get my stuff together, then, hey, I might sometime be able later to help someone get their stuff straightened out. Do you think that Jesus, in the final days of his life, during his arrest and his trial and his mocking and his scourging and his crucifixion, do you think that he was thinking about himself and about trying to get his stuff straightened out? Well, I think the author to the Hebrews tells us very differently when he says that Jesus, right, the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And that joy that was set before Jesus was what? It was you. It was me. It was others. So what enabled Jesus to endure the most intense suffering in the history of mankind was his love for and his focus on serving other people and not himself. And it's that very same kind of focus on others before ourselves. That's what's going to help us endure and to persevere through the most difficult trials that we have in our lives. When we are in deep trial, we can be praying for others. We can be actively looking for ways to be a blessing to others. And we can even at that time share what very little we have. We can share that with others. Remember, it was Jesus who said that he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So for our own sake, as well as the sake of the building up of the body of Christ, we need to be serving the Lord in our Christian life with whatever ability that God supplies to make our lives spiritually fruitful. And whatever calling he has placed upon your life, and we need to be working to build up the body in preparation for darker days ahead. Because watch what Peter does now. Having just mentioned this, he pivots again, kind of in the last section of this section, and he encourages us. Not only do we need to live with the mind of Christ, not only do we need to live like the time is short, but we also need to live sustained by God's grace. Look at verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you. Again, Peter says, look, things are going to get rough, so don't be caught off 
guard. Now, why would Peter write to Christians and tell us not to think that trials are strange? Except for the fact, be honest, that when we first find ourselves in a trial, especially if it is a great and an overwhelming trial, so often one of the very first things that we can tend to think is, wow, this is strange that I'm in this trial. And yet what Peter's saying is here, is the, the reason he's saying it is so that when these things happen, don't let them stumble you. Don't let that trial that's come into your life stumble you in your faith. I love what they say that if the Christian life was supposed to be easy, somebody forgot to tell the apostles. Somebody forgot to let Paul know. Somebody forgot to let Peter know. Instead, we need to expect these kinds of trials. So often when something like that happens, we ask, why me? And yet the real question to ask is, why not? Right? Do the math with me really quick. If suffering is allowed by the Lord into our lives to accomplish this refining process in our hearts and to loosen the grip that sin has on us and to cause those around us to see us as unique in the way that we experience trials, if we just saw that they place us in good company and that they keep us focused on eternity and that they encourage us to be active and to participate in ministry, then why wouldn't we embrace that trial as a wonderful, necessary part of our growth? Because it's no fun, is it? It's no fun in the here and now. That's why. Because if we're all honest, we are way more concerned with our current comfort than with the Christ-like character that he's developing in us. And yet what happens is every time that we wiggle out of or we escape out from underneath or we skate around some fiery trial, what we're really doing is we are trading in something that's eternal for the sake of something temporal. And we've lost that heavenly perspective. We've stopped living our lives in light of eternity. And so as this world gets so dark, right, as we see it become even more proud and more bold in its rebellion against the Lord, as we see it just parading itself and just exalting immorality and unrighteousness, Right? As people are shouting us down because we're standing against sin, we shouldn't consider it strange that we're going to be persecuted simply because we're faithful to the word of God. But instead it says in verse 13, he says, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. So in the midst of dark days, what does Peter say? Remember Jesus. Because when we're rejected for doing what's right, it just means that we're living the way that he did. Again, as we said earlier, we can't expect the world to treat Jesus in us any differently than they treated him. And instead, Peter says, focus on the glory that God is going to reveal because of the suffering that you're enduring. Remember that Jesus gave us a great illustration of this in John chapter 16, where he said that a woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. The suffering is always transformed into glory. That very same baby who caused so much pain now ultimately brings this unspeakable joy. And in the very same way, that heartache or that setback or that difficulty that's causing you pain and agony right now may very well ultimately be the thing that God uses to bring you joy. That thing that's breaking your heart right now could very soon turn to be the delight of your soul. You just watch and watch the Lord do that. We need to keep our eyes on eternity, remembering that there is a reward that's waiting for us on the other side of all of this. And I mean, the world is heaping reproach on us more and more as we try to live faithful to the Lord. And further, Peter says in verse 14 that if you are reproached for the name of Christ... 
So if you're reproached for being a Christian, blessed are you. He says, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. Now, this is an outstanding verse because Peter's already encouraged us that when trials come, that we're suffering for, for Jesus' sake, we're even suffering with Jesus, and also that that suffering that we're enduring now is just a taste of that glory that we're going to experience later as a result of the trial. But here he says further that even in the midst of the trial, he says there's a blessing because the Spirit of God rests upon us to sustain us. And literally, I love that phrase, rest upon, because the way that you could literally render it is that it rests with refreshing power. Now, as believers in Jesus, every one of us, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. But it's during times of testing and of trial that we experience the Spirit in a new and a powerful and often an overwhelming way. Again, you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They go into the fiery faith, they, uh, the fiery faith, the fiery furnace, but they had faith in the fiery furnace. I need the gift of being able to talk, but pray for that gift for me. They had faith that God would deliver them, but we see not only did he deliver them out of the trial, but what happened? He actually and literally in that case, right, he walked with them in the midst of the trial. And as a result, you know the story, God was glorified and they were sustained through it. I love verse 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Jesus appears to Paul in the midst of his trial. And what does he say? He says that my grace is sufficient for you. He says, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And then you remember Paul's response to that. He says, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. One of the more modern translations quotes that, renders that this way. He says, so if Christ keeps giving me his power, I will gladly brag about just how weak I am. Right? When we make a stand for the Lord in this world and it results in persecution or results in opposition, when God, what he does in meeting that is he simply ups the amount of his grace that he's pouring into our lives. He simply raises the amount of his glory, right? The glory of his Holy Spirit. He raises the amount that's required for us to be able to stand up in the midst of or in the face of whatever we're facing. And so we are actually blessed because we're in trial, because we get to experience that. Maybe you've been in a situation where things are so unfair and the whole thing, you know, everything that's going on and people are rejecting you and they're even targeting you. But I mean, at that point, you can physically feel the power of God as it rises up inside of you. And that alone makes the whole thing worth it. And God is so faithful to do that when we suffer for his sake. Because look what Peter says next in verse 15. He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody. Interesting that that's included in the list with murder. Or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Now this is important because the point here is that persecution, no matter how unfair, it can't be an excuse for lawlessness. Right? A Christian should never bring suffering upon himself because we respond or retaliate wrongly. Think about what was happening at the time. Right? Violence against them was never to be met with murder. Right? Confiscation of their property wasn't to be answered by theft. Above all else, we need to make sure that we're glorifying God even in our suffering. And how do we bring glory to God in the midst of difficult days? Just by staying faithful.
simply staying faithful, just continuing to live for him right up until the final breath or right up until the rapture or whatever it is, right? Though this life is promised not to be easy, right? So not only do we need to live sustained by God's grace, but Peter says something kind of ironic now. We need to live in light of God's judgment. Verse 17, he says, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. We've all heard this verse, right? It sounds like God's standing up there with a lightning bolt ready to just explode the church. But the judgment that Peter's pointing to here, it has the sense more so of discipline, right? Because in this present age, God so often allows these painful circumstances and these difficult days in the lives of his own household, not to condemn us, but to mature us, right? To purify us and to refine us and sometimes to bring repentance where it's needed. In Hebrews 12, it says that whom the Lord loves, he chastens. This may be my life verse. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? You know, a loving father doesn't discipline the kids down the street, right? Because they're not his. A loving father disciplines his own children. And so our heavenly father begins at his own household with his own children, and that's us, the church. And that begins with this judgment or this discipline now. He is absolutely reserving for the wicked an ultimate final judgment. And that's a judgment that we as his kids will never experience. Look what Paul explains to the Corinthians. He says, when we are judged by the Lord... We are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So we may have our trials now and our glory later, but the lost have their glory now and they'll have their suffering later. And so Peter continues now with the rest of that verse. He says, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So if God is righteous enough to exercise judgment on his own children, then what in the world is the judgment going to look like when it falls on the people of the earth who are worthy of that judgment because they've rejected the gospel of Jesus? And in the next verse, Peter quotes from Proverbs 11 to prove this point. In verse 18, he says, Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved... Where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Now that word scarcely, I don't think is a great translation because the the word carries the sense of with difficulty. So the idea is saved with difficulty. Now the thought isn't that our salvation is difficult in terms of us earning it or of finding a way to somehow deserve it, right? Our salvation is the free gift of Jesus Christ. And yet our salvation is hard in the sense that the claims of discipleship on our lives, they challenge us, don't they? They demand that we live differently. They demand that we patiently endure even our suffering now so often at the hands of those who are ungodly. So real discipleship and genuinely following after Jesus truly is sometimes a hard thing, and yet it's the right thing, isn't it? No matter how hard things may get. And you think about this fiery trial that was about to come upon these Christians under the persecution by Nero, and Peter's reminding them, again, he's exhorting us, that as bad as it may get, It is nothing like what is going to come one day towards those who are living unrighteously. So here you've got Christians, right? Here they are, maybe you are paying a tremendous price for your faith. And Peter's saying, look, don't be tempted to jump from the frying pan into the fire. 
It may be really hot where you are. It may be really difficult where you are. But don't go back into the world, right? Don't abandon Christ to escape it because the judgment that is coming on the world is infinitely worse than the judgment that we're facing for our faith in Jesus Christ. And therefore, he says in verse 19, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Now, I love this verse. You love this verse because it's the last verse. I love this verse because the word there for commit will be done, I promise, within an hour. The word there for commit, it's a banking term that Peter uses. It, it's the act of depositing money into a bank account to keep it safe. And I think it ties in so beautifully with Peter's gold illustration from chapter 1. Because here's God sending these fiery trials to burn away the dross out of our lives and to make us more valuable. And now we are committing ourselves to him for safekeeping. Knowing that he can't fail us because he is faithful. So what do we do when we find ourselves suffering unjustly in the will of God because we're trying to be faithful to the Lord? What do we do? Just keep trusting him. Keep trusting him. And then as Peter says here, just keep doing good. And the same God who created the heavens and the earth, he knows how to take just those two things that we try to give him. And he knows how to create something that's so very beautiful for his glory out of it. We just keep trusting him. Keep doing good. Keep on living in the days of difficulty. Right? Keep living with the mind of Christ and like time is short and like we're sustained by God's grace but living in light of God's judgment. We do those things and he will be so faithful to do the rest. Now, as we close... I think it's interesting that at the conclusion of this exhortation about how to persevere during difficult days, of all the titles that we have for God, I think it's interesting that Peter uses, he says, when you suffer, commit your soul to your creator. Now, why creator? Well, I think it's so that he reminds us that God is the creator of everything, right? He is the all-powerful, almighty. He is over all things, including the situation in which you're suffering, right? Nothing can happen that God doesn't allow, even the difficulty that you're dealing with, right? He's the creator of the person to whom you are married. He's the creator of that person with whom you work. He's the creator of that neighbor by whom you live, right? He's the creator of every situation. And if he has created it by virtue of the fact that he has allowed it into your life, then we can trust that he's using it to work in us. So for our own sakes, as well as for the sake of those who you know, I think we just need to be slowly but surely learning to embrace difficulty, trying to understand, again, that these times loosen sin's grip on us and that they cause others to look at us differently and that they keep us in that good company of those others who've suffered before us, right? That they allow us to experience the glory and the grace of God, that they remind us to just keep ourselves committed so faithfully to our creator. And I'll end with this news flash. We will go through more fiery trials before Jesus returns. The world situation will not get better. Right? Attitudes of the world towards Christians are not going to improve. Now, we can compromise and indeed we will escape some trial and our, our ride's going to be a little bit less bumpy but we're also going to miss out on all of these blessings. We're going to miss out on the glory of that sustaining, refreshing power of the Spirit as he strengthens us. And we're also going to miss out on that blessing of sharing in the sufferings 
of our Savior. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you so much again, as we do every week, Lord. We thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for the insight and the encouragement that it provides for us, Lord. And we thank you for the perspective that it gives to us, Lord. And we, we pray that we would be people, Lord, by your grace, that would be able to maintain that perspective um, as we each face times of difficulty, Lord, personally, Lord, those things that come into our lives, Lord, that diagnosis or that financial struggle or whatever it is, Lord, we pray that you would uh, help us to maintain our perspective. Lord, also as a church, we pray that we would Lord, that you would help us to love each other more and to love each other better uh, as we need each other more and more as the days get darker and darker. And so we thank you, Lord, and uh, we pray that you would do these things now in our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and let's uh, worship the Lord one last time together.